Good afternoon, and welcome to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium and the Cato Institute. Uh, I appreciate your coming out today. Uh, this is a really important topic. Uh, the I have a book forum here for the Human Cost of Welfare by Phil Harvey and Lisa Conyers. Uh, for those folks who are following this online, you can uh, follow along on Twitter at hashtag Cato Events and, or uh, hashtag Human Cost of Welfare. Now, the U.S. federal government last year spent roughly $688 billion to fund more than 100 anti-poverty programs. Federal, and, or state and local governments, rather, spent an additional $300 billion on those and other programs. That means the government is spending close to a trillion dollars every year fighting poverty. If you want to go all the way back to 1965, when Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty, we've spent some 22 or 23 trillion dollars fighting poverty. But what have we really accomplished over that period of time? If you use the Census Bureau's official poverty numbers, poverty rates have barely budged. And even if you use the sort of alternative poverty measures, which are more accurate and take into account non-cash benefits and things like that, taxation and other things, you find that progress against poverty really stalled out somewhere in the 1970s and has been pretty flat ever since. We're spending more and more money every year and getting fewer and fewer results. But as bad as that is for taxpayers and for the fiscal balance sheet of the US government, the real problem is that it's bad for the people living in poverty. Because not only are we spending money and not helping them, in many cases, we may actually be making their situation worse. Or at least that's the case that's argued by Phil and Lisa in their book. And so we're thrilled to have them with us today to talk a little bit about the studies they've done, the people they've talked to, uh, the fantastic opportunity they've given to give actual voice to people living in poverty and people on welfare to tell their own stories. And so we're very happy to have them with us today. And they're going to tell us a little bit about this. Then we're going to have some conversation. And then we will get you folks involved as well. Uh, Phil Harvey is the chief sponsor of the DKT Liberty Project, which is an advocacy group that raises awareness about liberty and freedom in the United States. He's the author of a number of other books, including Let Every Child Be Wanted, How Social Marketing is Revolutionizing Contraceptive Use Around the World, and Government Creep, What the Government is Doing That You Don't Know About. He writes for the Huffington Post, Forbes, and other publications, and Profiles have appeared in The Economist, The Chronicle of Philanthropy, and Mother Jones. Quite a cross-section there uh, of publications. Uh, he's chairman of the board of DKT International. And Lisa Conyers is the director of policy studies for DKT Liberty Project. She works on topics like welfare policy, inequality, and civil liberties. She has a bachelor's degree from George Mason University and a master's in management from the University of Maryland. She's a consultant and ghostwriter whose work focuses on economics and public policy issues. 
Uh, this is a really terrific book. There will be a signing later on. If you haven't bought one already, I urge you to do it. And in the meantime, let's hear from the authors of it. We'll start with Phil Harvey. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you for being here on what started out to be a very rainy day. It isn't any longer, which is, which is good. Uh, thanks to the Cato Institute for arranging this and making it possible. And uh, special thanks to, uh, to Michael Tanner. Uh, Michael has written, studied, lectured widely on subjects relating to welfare and poverty in the United States. Uh, and his work uh, has greatly informed uh, our book, um, and uh, we're especially grateful to him uh, uh, for that. Um, we'll talk a little bit today about the, the basic issues uh, outlined in our, in our book, uh, issues relating to welfare and its problems. Uh, we'll talk quickly about the welfare state and the extent to which the United States is becoming one, the correlation between uh, uh, the rise in welfare and the drop in uh, workforce participation in the United States, the extent to which uh, people on welfare feel trapped and in many cases are trapped in a cycle of uh, welfare and uh, poverty and dependence, uh, and we'll discuss briefly the benefits cliff, which is one of the, rain, uh, one of the principal reasons uh, for that feeling, that sensation of entrapment that uh, so many of those who Lisa interviewed uh, expressed. Uh, first, let's take a quick look, go ahead and a quick look at um, the relationship uh, between welfare spending and defense spending in the United States, it seems to me uh, that given the fact that America spends uh, almost as much as the rest of the world put together on defense, uh, that the fact that welfare expenditures are now overtaking, uh, have uh, often uh, overtaken already, and are destined to overtake defense spending uh, even more as the years uh, uh, go by in the future, uh, means that we have come a very long way uh, indeed uh, to becoming a welfare state because it is now uh, a, a larger uh, uh, obligation than, uh, than defense. The next uh, slide. Um, shows um, the inverse correlation between uh, uh, increases in welfare uh, expenditures. This is a particularly steep increase. Uh, the blue line is um, uh, food stamp, the food stamp program, which has skyrocketed more than some of the others. Uh, but it makes the point. The red line uh, is a workforce participation. That is the percentage of adult Americans who are either working uh, or looking for work. Um, this does not prove causation, um, uh, but we think that uh, the uh, 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 correlation between these two items uh, is not entirely coincidental. Um, as uh, 
As Mike mentioned, uh, welfare spending at the federal level is now nearly $700 billion a year. Uh, and our feeling after doing the research and Lisa doing over 100 interviews uh, with welfare beneficiaries is uh, that the cost to us as taxpayers, uh, while it's very, very high, is not as bad as the cost being paid by the beneficiaries of this program, and I'll explain uh, why we feel that way. Um, two principal reasons uh, for this sense of being trapped in poverty, which people hate, of being dependent on the government, which people hate. Uh, two of the main reasons are the benefits cliff uh, and the culture of the welfare system itself. The benefits cliff is that point as perceived by people receiving welfare payments and other benefits uh, as the point at which when they earn too much money, they're going to lose their benefits, perhaps unpredictably uh, and perhaps suddenly. Uh, the rules are there, uh, but they are very complicated and hard to figure out. Uh, one woman who uh, Lisa interviewed, uh, quoting her caseworker, uh, said, oh, no, 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 you're earning a little money now. We're, we're going to have to cut your benefits. Now, that woman is afraid to earn any money at all now. Exactly the opposite of what I think uh, uh, people in poverty want to do themselves and exactly the opposite of what uh, we would like uh, for them to be able to do. Now, I should interject here that this cycle of poverty and dependency is is not true of all welfare beneficiaries. The safety net uh, for some people works the way it's supposed to. Uh, you lose a job, you go on food stamps for three, four, five months, you get another job, and you go off. And that part of the, that aspect for those people, the safety net works the way it's supposed to. Uh, I, I don't think we want to imply uh, that welfare is a trap for everyone. For, for a significant number, it is not. But uh, we now see more and more people on for three, four, five, six years, uh, and, and that is the population that we are particularly concerned about and the population that is, frankly, miserable. Uh, we've been warned over the years by people who are in, in concerned with welfare issues um, of the dangers involved, and we're seeing some of the dangers uh, uh, taking place today. One of the most articulate uh, spokespersons on this subject was President Franklin Roosevelt, uh, who referred to relief, as it was called then, as a subtle narcotic. Uh, I think um, a, a very insightful a description, a destroyer of the human spirit, he said, undermining dignity and self-respect. Uh, we must preserve self-respect, Roosevelt said, self-reliance, courage, and determination. So he understood the dangers and was very, very concerned about them. Uh, how does welfare, why does welfare, why does dependence, financial dependence on the government uh, have uh, these enervating and, uh, and, and deeply negative effects? It's simply because 
all of us want to accomplish things in life. All of us want to be able to say, I did that. I raised a family. I supported my family. I got my kids into college. I learned to play the saxophone. It's expressed in many different ways. But we all need earned accomplishment uh, to make our lives uh, worthwhile. And that is exactly the element that is missing in the lives uh, of those uh, who depend heavily on welfare. Uh, one of the women uh, Lisa interviewed expressed uh, this fact extremely well, and I just want to read uh, her quote uh, because I think it illustrates both the, the uh, negative side of being dependent and the positive side of, of working your way out. Uh, and I quote here, this is a woman in uh, Decatur, Illinois. I remember that first paycheck when I went back to work like it was yesterday. $177. Not much, right? But it was mine. And I took it home and showed it to the kids, and it made me feel good inside. My kids, they need so many things, diapers, toys, shoes, clothes, and they need me to provide for them. And it gives me a lot of pride to do that instead of them seeing mama cashing welfare checks. I think that encapsulates the human part uh, of this, uh, of this uh, dilemma. Um, the answer, as the lady from uh, Decatur suggests, for most Americans, most of the time, the answer to the need and the, the, the need for uh, uh, earned, uh, earned accomplishment is a job. Not for everybody, but for most people, it is paid work. And the system, the welfare system, is conspicuously bad at getting people out of welfare and into work. Uh, one of the people we encountered was a man named Angel, who had been on welfare for many, many, many years, and he was just angry about this fact. He said, you go to the welfare office, they should post jobs. There should be on the bulletin board, there should be jobs available in, the, in this community. He said, but they don't. You go in on the bulletin board, it says, need help with food stamps? Need, need Medicaid uh, uh, assistance? Uh, nothing about jobs. And that is the other aspect uh, of this form of entrapment. The whole system, including recruiting uh, government workers sponsoring bingo nights for seniors to get them to come in and sign up for food stamps, for heaven's sakes. Now, there's been some pushback on that recently. I'm very glad to see it, that, uh, that recruiting is taking this business a little too far. But still, the psychology of the system is more welfare, more different welfare programs, and nothing about jobs and work. The only program that has a job training and job placement components is TANF, T-A-N-F, the uh, program that replaced Aid to Families with Dependent Children back in 1996. Uh, and that program has become very, very small. It's only 2 or 3% of the total welfare package now. Uh, so these other programs have uh, overtaken it, and they do not have work uh, components. There's one program in the system, one big program, the Earned Income Tax Credit, which does require work and earning in order to enjoy that benefit. Uh, and we think that shows uh, the way 
uh, to greatly improve the system uh, and that using that as a model, we may be able uh, to come up with ways uh, of making the situation a whole lot better. Thanks. I just have one slide, it's pretty simple. Um, first of all, I just want to thank everybody for coming out today. It's a Monday, and this is a great way to start the week, talking about interesting ideas. And um, I want to thank Michael Tanner again for having us, and Cato Institute too. Um, I just love that they put on these events and get us all together to talk about things. So I'm delighted to be here, and um, I'm going to talk just really briefly about more of the philosophical underpinning behind our book, because it's based on a pretty philosophical idea. And then I'll just speak briefly about the methodology, how, I did, how we did the book, how I did my travels, and then we'll just open it to questions from Michael and from you guys. So um, the reason I picked this slide is because that's basically, the, the philosophy behind the book is that we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But most especially, what we're interested in is the pursuit of happiness. Um, and the idea is that or what we wanted to look at is if, we're, if we have the right to pursue happiness, what does that mean? What does it mean to be happy? What does it take for all of us to be happy? And then once we decide on that, what does the welfare system have to do with that? Will it help us be happier or will it not help us be happier? Is it helping the people who are on it lead satisfying lives and pursue happiness or not? So that's the question that we wanted to answer with this book. Um, so. As far as happiness goes, we aren't the first people to come up with the idea that what we do for a living is really essential to human happiness. What we do to self-actualize, what we do to um, get that earned success that Arthur Brooks talks about. Um, and scholars from Aristotle to you know, Socrates and on have all talked about happiness. And they all look at this kind of like, what is it? what do we need? And we all know, I mean, if I were to ask you, probably the first question I would ask you is, what do you do, right? Are you an artist? Are you a teacher? Are you a writer? Are you a policy analyst? Are you, you know, and that's how we identify with our, who we are and what we are doing with our lives. And so if we agree that we have the right to pursue happiness, and if we agree that happiness is tied up with what we do for a living and how we earn our way, then what does a welfare system look like under those parameters? Is it, does it help people be happy or does it not? And so that was basically the underlying philosophy behind this book. Um, so yes, there's a lot of policy analysis in there. There's plenty of charts for policy wonks and all that kind of stuff. But it's also a deeply philosophical thought and idea that we wanted to address. So what we found out when we started looking at welfare programs is that they actually put people in a position where work is a threat rather than a reward. It's risky to go to work. You'll lose benefits if you go to work. And the rules are really strict and very hard to deal with. So when you hear about, for example, um, you know, a lot of people are on welfare are working. You know, what about the working poor? They're working, right? But the problem is that they're being told that they can work, you know, a few hours a week or a month, they can earn so much, but if they go over that, you're off the rolls. And I met a lot of people that had tripped up over those rules. Um, you know, a gift from an aunt or uh, somebody dying in the family and leaving them money. Um, that suddenly threw them out of all these programs and left them in a position where they were 
had to get back on. It took several months. And so the whole psychology about work changes when you're on these programs. All of a sudden, the value of the programs becomes greater than a job that you could get. Um, so for example, Phil talked a little bit about the welfare cliff. And the director of health and human services in the state of Pennsylvania looked at this. He decided to actually do an example of a woman that would be in this position and what it would look like. And um, so he took a mother with two children, a single mom with two kids, living in the suburbs. She'd be getting cash assistance. She'd be getting food stamps. She'd be getting WIC, which is additional food for her and her infant. She'd be getting housing. She'd be, getting, she'd be on Medicaid. And doing the math, adding up the value of all those benefits, he found that you'd have to earn close to $59,000 a year to replace those benefits. So if somebody wants to go to work and they're offered a job and it's not, and it's not gonna cover the value of those benefits, all of a sudden they make a very rational decision based on the incentives to not work. And, um, and that's scary because maybe in the short term we think, well, that's okay, you know, we're helping them out, we're giving them, you know, they're getting support, so that's good, right? Because we don't want the poor to not get support. But we're actually telling them not to go to work. Um, we also do this in the uh, disability system. If any of you who are familiar with anybody on disability, you know that you're uh, told not to go to work if you get on disability because you have a good chance of losing your benefits. Um, and so we take people that are disabled but would like to work and make work into a risk. So that's basically the underlying philosophy behind this book, that we believe that we do all have the right to pursue happiness and that happiness requires work and earn success and that welfare systems get in the way of that. So um, in a nutshell, if you got that, you got the whole premise of the book. <laughs> uh, briefly, I'm going to just tell you that as far as my role in the book, Phil and I um, did a lot of policy analysis together. But we wanted to do a book that was a little bit different than most of the work that comes out of DC, um, which is very heavy on policy analysis, but is maybe missing that, you know, what's it like? How do these policies actually play out in real life for the real people who are affected? So I traveled all over the country, um, the Northeast, the South, the Southwest, the, you know, the Pacific Northwest, California, Hawaii. I went all over the place. And I went into soup kitchens and homeless shelters and tent cities and um, bus stops, wherever I could find people that would be willing to talk to me. And I just asked them if they would be willing to talk to somebody who was writing about welfare, about what their life was like. And surprisingly, people were perfectly happy to talk to me and show me their math and what they were doing and what they were living on and how many dollars they got every month. And um, so then we took all those stories and we added them to our policy analysis. So the book is not just a dry sort of, you know, food stamps cost us this much and, and this is how it works out. And it then goes on with stories from the road. So we think that that's a really unique contribution to this whole field of policy um, research and we were delighted to do it. And I think I'm done. So I'm going to open questions from Michael. I think I've done what I was supposed to do. <laughs> All right. Well, let me start with sort of at a 30,000-foot level, if I can, then we'll sort of bore down a little bit after that. One of the, the really fascinating things about this book is the fact that you did talk to, to actual participants in the system and, and gave them a voice in it. Uh, too much in Washington. But the book left the right. It tends to be throwing around numbers and statistics, and, and it's very dry out.
These are called lavaliers. I don't know who lavalier was. <laughs> They're not lava ears? I thought they were. Yeah. <laughs> All right, starting again. Okay. On this, but, to, but essentially, you, you gave voice to people mm -hmm. actually in the system, which is so unusual uh, when, as part of the welfare debate. We tend to think of folks as dry statistics and what have you. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, in, in terms of this, what you learned about why people are poor. I mean, essentially, if you look at the big debate academically right now, there's one side that talks about how poverty is essentially structural. It's based on racism and sexism and mm -hmm. sort of things beyond individual's control. And then there's sort of another side of it that says, well, it's, it's bad behavior on the part of the poor. They've done bad things in their lives, made mistakes, made bad decisions, and that's why they're poor. You actually interacted with the poor. What, what did you see in, in those, those regards? Well, I think people are poor because they don't have any money. <laughs> um, but um, I think that, you know, it's a very complicated subject, and it, it's everything from bad decision-making. I mean, certainly I saw people who had made bad decisions and ended up, you know, in a position where they couldn't, nobody would hire them, or, or, or they had, um, you know, addiction issues where they couldn't hold a job. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why people are poor. So I don't think there's any one. I think the fact that I did my travels during the... Um, during the recession made it kind of interesting because I was seeing people who had just, I mean, there was a lot of job loss during that time and I was traveling around the country during that time and people were saying, well, yeah, it's easy to talk about this, but there's no jobs available. Like, what am I supposed to do, you know? So that made it kind of a little bit more complicated. Um, but, so I guess the answer is, I mean, for many decisions, for many reasons, you know, but I will say that the vast majority of the people that I interviewed would much rather be working. I heard over and over and over again, I would much rather be doing work, and it didn't matter what kind of work, any kind of work, than, than having to be on these programs. And you know, some people say, oh, well, there's those people out there, they just don't want to work. I maybe expected to see a little bit of that, and I'm sure it's out there, but I didn't meet people like that. I met people that were really trying hard, and they didn't want, their preference would have been to be working. The war on drugs has certainly contributed. Uh, the fact that so many uh, young men, particularly young black men, are spending time in jail, uh, uh, clearly find it harder to get uh, legal work uh, uh, as a result of that. Uh, and that has added, I mean, that is another cycle of uh, poverty and incarceration, uh, but it has certainly added to the, uh, to the poverty cycle in the United States. Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty undeniable. Mm -hmm. the, other, the other thing you make such a strong case in this book for <clears throat> is what, in, in a common talk about the marginal tax rate, or the fact that people, when they earn a certain amount of money, they start losing their benefits, they're also taxed on that income uh, very quickly. And the fact that that discourages work, I think, is pretty undeniable. We made that case, uh, many people recall, in a, in a study called the Work Versus Welfare Trade-Off, which was widely criticized, and I think, in the Pennsylvania study and some stuff, how CBO and stuff, and I think there's an Ohio study mm -hmm. also that sort of confirmed where we were coming down on that. And then your book, I think, really builds uh, on that work. What would you, though, recommend as an alternative to that. I mean, so the, I know that when we brought out that study, some folks on the left said, well, the answer is therefore we have to raise wages. We need a higher minimum wage or we need more guaranteed benefits of some kind. 
Uh, other people said, well, it means we need to cut welfare benefits back down, down to a lower level. Some people talked about the earned income tax credit. What do you recommend as, as an answer? Well, certainly uh, making welfare point toward work uh, uh, is, is an important part of that. Uh, the present system is anti-work. It's, it's almost a war on work. Uh, and that's insane. Uh, at the very, very least, we ought to be helping people get out of the system uh, and, uh, and, and into to paid employment. I did mention the EITC. It does have the effect of topping up wages, and that, uh, I think, is, is very good. It's a cumbersome system. It requires filing an income tax return. Uh, it was basically designed originally to refund to low-income people the, uh, any federal income tax uh, that had been withheld from their wages, but it now tops up uh, those amounts by considerably more than has ever been uh, withheld. It's the right idea uh, because it makes work pay. It has contributed very substantially uh, to getting people uh, out of welfare and, in, and into work and to, to, to take a job uh, that may pay 7 or $8 an hour, but when you get the EITC benefit, it's the same uh, again, with this somewhat cumbersome process, as earning 12 or $14 an hour, and that is, I think, the, the right way to go about it. I certainly agree with you, Michael, that, that this plethora of benefits, housing, food, etc., is very patronizing, and that to the extent we can give people money and let them make their own decisions about their own lives and set their own priorities, that, that, that that is also uh, a move in the right direction and that subsidizing wages is one way of doing that. You know, we've seen uh, some states, uh, Kansas and uh, Missouri and others, coming down with all sorts of the drug testing of recipients, the uh, rec- prohibition on buying seafood with food stamps or limiting people on TANF to $25 a day taking out of a cash machine, despite the fact the high fees that go with banking and so on. Do you see this sort of punitive approach as being uh, effective or being counterproductive uh, to what to way the people actually have to live? It's, it's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, and... Um, yeah, I, I guess I would agree with Phil that, I mean, people... Are, aren't just because, I mean, they can make good decisions, they will make good decisions, and they don't need a, a lot of patronizing in order to do that. Um, and, and it doesn't seem to be working very well in the places that it's been tried. I mean, it tends to get passed and then immediately, you know, rescinded, so. I mean, I know you do describe yourself in the, in the book as being at least open to the idea of a guaranteed national income to replace the current pile of welfare programs we have on that. One of the big problems with that is trying to make the numbers on that work. Uh, as you know, we did a study here on that and found we couldn't find a way to make it, make the numbers work. But is that something you're open to? Yes. I mean, there, there are two kinds, and I think we need to distinguish. The, the, the system, which was then, I think, called negative income tax, which topped up right, Milton Friedman. Yes. The Friedman idea, which topped up people's wages, uh, turned out to be a, a work killer. And for the very simple reason that uh, 
if you were making $9,000 and the, the established level was $12,000, then the government gives you $3,000. Under those circumstances, you have no incentive at all to make that $3,000 yourself because you're going to end up with the same amount of money uh, anyway. Um, the uh, straight cash benefits uh, are, I think, the, the purest form is, is uh, the Charles Murray uh, plan in his book, uh, In Our Hands, which is to give everybody, 10, every adult American, $10,000 a year and nothing else. Um, this is affordable if you don't give it to the truly wealthy, and I think um, uh, that distinction uh, does have to be made because if you're giving $10,000 a year to millionaires uh, it, and everybody in between, it does cost too much. Um, but uh, I th we haven't really tested this at all well, and I agree with you. Michael has written a good deal uh, uh, about this and some experiments on just giving people money and letting them make their own decisions. Murray. Murray uh, uh, sets up some interesting hypotheticals. He says $10,000 a year if three or four of you want to get together and rent a shack by the, on the beach and spend the rest of your life surfing, you can do that. Nobody's going to tell you how to spend the money. Uh, there are no incentives to work. There are no disincentives to work. There are no incentives to have children. There are no dis... I mean, it's, it, in that respect, is entirely neutral. Uh, my res reservation uh, about that, having, having found the power of the relationship between work and, and happiness in, this, in, in doing this book, is that too many people wouldn't work, and even though that would be their own choice, there's no guiding hand telling them not to work, but people who aren't working generally aren't as happy as people who are. So I, I have that concern, but I do think we should test it. Yeah, it does seem that the studies that were done in the 1970s by the MRDC and others did show, at least with the negative income tax, that it did have a discouraging effect on work because, the, because of that marginal tax rate problem. Murray, I know, suggested about $25,000 tax-free, and then he would start taxing above that, but you'd still have some sort of problems with marginal tax rate. Yeah, you would. Phased in there. And if you tried to give the $10,000 to everybody, it's about $4 trillion, which is truly unaffordable. So making the numbers work seems to overcome theory on that. What about some of the other approaches that are being talked about out there? One of the big uh, things on the Republican side now is to consolidate these programs and to sort of block grant them to the state. Paul Ryan wants to do it with a small number of programs. Uh, Marco Rubio, I think, has suggested, although he hasn't really spelled out, didn't really spell out the details in his book, but kind of almost everything, giving them to the states in terms of a block grant and then having some sort of standards that the states had to meet uh, to continue to qualify. Uh, would that be an approach that you think you, that you would be uh, in favor of? What did you hear at that, at that meeting in South Carolina? Oh, um, I was on the advisory council for Paul Ryan's uh, poverty summit in, North, in South Carolina in January where six of the Republican presidential candidates came and talked about poverty for a half a day, which was really cool. I mean, Paul Ryan really had some, you know, some 
energy in the room. Unfortunately, the six candidates that came are no longer in the race. And um, <laughs> even though the, the on the Democratic side, they were invited but chose not to attend. So um, I don't know where we stand with all that. But um, Kasich was there. He's not quite out yet. Oh, that's right. Kasich was there. I take it back. There's one, one left standing. Um, but um, in terms of the block grants to the states, in our reading of, of how these things play out, for example, the 1996 welfare reforms were supposed to be welfare to, welfare to work. They were all supposed to have a work component. You were supposed to you know, be given encouragement and ways to get a job. And the whole idea was that we were going to end welfare, as we know, and get everybody into work. Um, and then a lot of those programs were sort of turned over to the states for enforcement. And what happens on the state level is that all of a sudden you're dealing with real people. And lo and behold, their waivers started happening. So now if you look at federal welfare programs as they actually play out in the states today, you find that even though something comes in with rules from Washington, when it gets out to Iowa or Washington State or wherever, the state is dealing with their population of people on welfare and they adjust accordingly. So I have some, you know, some thought some concerns about that, but I do like the idea of giving states more control on the flip side, so I'm kind of schizophrenic on this because <laughs> I think that overall the states do deal with their actual populations. I mean, when you hear Kasich talk about the people in his state or, or you know, Bush or whatever, their populations, you know, they adjust their programs to meet their people. So if they had more freedom to do that, um, maybe they would do it better. But unfortunately, what I've seen so far is that they tend to loosen the requirements rather than tighten them for the most part. Well, I think one of the good things we're going to find here is some interesting questions from the audience, so I want to turn it over to them. But before I do, let me give you a chance to defend yourselves against what I think will be one of the criticisms uh, of your book, and that is that there's a certain amount of victim blaming that's going on, that it's, it's, it's essentially you, you take a, a poor person living in the inner city, mm -hmm. uh, they're, uh, they've had terrible schooling, because the inner city schools are, are, are by and large lousy. Uh, they're dealing with the criminal justice system and the war on drugs, that you've said. Uh, there's no jobs, certainly, in their neighborhood. Uh, you know, you go to the area. The area where uh, Freddie Gray was killed up in Baltimore, for example, there's not a, even a fast food store in that entire neighborhood. No supermarkets. There's, there's simply no employment opportunities around there. These are not people living in the suburbs. And, mm -hmm. so. and then you're saying, Okay, get a job. Mm -hmm. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Is that a fair charge to put on that poor person mm -hmm. to, to do that? And, and aren't you, in, in essence, somehow saying that they're behaving badly by not doing that? Well, um, what was it? Oh, I lost my train of thought. Um, as far as the, the job situation in inner cities, it's, Phil and I were at, uh, we did a book event in Baltimore a couple weeks ago, and we had a bunch of people in the audience who were talking about, you know, how they wish that there were more jobs, you know, there for people to, to have and that that was an issue, but they also agreed that, yeah, they'd rather be working. So even those who, who aren't able to find jobs, I mean, our point is those folks would rather be working. It's not that they're, that they're living there because they choose to live in, the, in, you know, inner city neighborhoods that don't have any jobs available. Um, and still, the, the, the idea that they do want to work um, is still there. Um, number two, when I traveled around the country, I met people that I would ask why they wouldn't move for work. Because, you know, at that time, North Dakota had 0% unemployment or something ridiculous, you know. And I would meet people in Alabama, and I'd say, you know, what about moving for work, which is something that we used to do a lot. I did it growing up. Um, and 
benefits kind of hold you back from that because it's really hard to get off those benefits and go move to another state and all of a sudden you've got to reapply and uh, so it gets very complicated. So, um, but as far as blaming the victim, I think that that's exactly what we're not doing. We're saying we care very deeply about these people and that they have just as much right to happiness as we do. I mean, why do they have any more or less right to the same things that we have? I mean, I have the right to happiness, they do too. And so to, to, to banish them or to, to leave them, to ignore them, to say, ah, well, you live in a poor neighborhood, you know, too bad for you. No, I mean, I think Phil and I are arguing very strongly that we care about them a lot and we want them to be happy and we believe that their happiness will come from them working. The, the worst thing, it seems to me, that you can do to somebody is to put them in a situation where they're going to be in a perpetual cycle of dependency and poverty. That's cruel, and we shouldn't do it. Uh, the best thing that you can do uh, on, in, in this context, it seems to me, is make work more attractive. Um, there's little to be said um, for doing more to create dependency that doesn't lead to satisfying lives, it leads exactly the other way. So I don't see any blaming the victim there. Uh, it seems to me that the idea that simply uh, providing uh, more uh, benefits to people is going to be good for them, and what we found is that it is not. I think that's a really important point. Uh, all right, let's go to the, the audience out here. Uh, if you can wait, I, we have uh, microphones that'll come around to you. If you can just identify yourself uh, as, you, as they approach you with the microphone, and then uh, please keep it to a question and not, not a speech. So right here in the, the second row, right there in the middle, Right there, one of you. <laughs> yep. All right. John Solid, an I'm an economist. Uh, it's a hypothetical question. That's why I get out here, get out of here alive. But what happens if you cut all of it and you went back to 1960? Is this a political issue? Because then I'm thinking in terms. This is why I get. You know, there's civil society. There's the family. There are other safety nets that aren't Uncle Sam. Uh, what would this look like if you'd got rid of the whole everything? I mean, I'm not running for office. <laughs> Phil has a good answer. Um, well, I think it's a, it's a, a fair question, frankly, and in many respects, uh, uh, there would be pluses. But uh, let us say uh, right off, there would be some destitution. One of the things that has been accomplished uh, by the welfare system, although it could have been done other ways, uh, is to virtually eliminate real destitution in this country. We don't have people starving in the streets. Now, I don't think they would be if we ended everything, because uh, Americans uh, give away $350 billion a year uh, to private charities, uh, and a great deal more of that, if we had no welfare, a great deal more of that would go to poverty uh, and less probably to the symphony and, and museums and universities. 
um, so that I think society would adjust, but there would be a, a period there that would, that would be rough uh, uh, for some uh, people. Uh, I do think that um, private philanthropy could be taking up much, much more uh, of, of the welfare uh, uh, issue. Uh, and one of the recommendations we discuss in, in the book uh, is giving people uh, a tax credit for donating to a list of uh, several thousand charities. There's always the problem of picking those charities, but uh, instead of giving money to the government for food stamps, you could give it uh, to the charity of your choice um, uh, for um, uh, assisting uh, the poor, and they would have to use it for something related to that purpose. Uh, I think that would be a good move. One, no, sorry. Just a couple more things I would add to that is that there's a very robust underground economy. So, um, you know, there are, there are, people are not necessarily living on food stamps. They're living on food stamps and then they're trading and bartering and doing all kinds of things. So, um, you know, the, you have to keep that in mind. Number two, part of your savings would be a vast array of government employees that administer all these programs. So they'd all lose their jobs, which would mean more unemployment. <laughs> but on the other hand, we'd free up some money that was, wasn't directly going towards the poor anyway. So. I was going to say, in response to that, the consumption data, if you look at what the poor actually spend as opposed to what their income is, it's, it's in some cases like seven times higher yeah. uh, in terms of consumption. So it, it's significant. The other interesting thing in regard to what Phil said is if you looked at poverty rates prior to 1965, they were coming down steadily. And they, they continued to come down through the early 1970s, and then they've pretty much leveled off since then. And you can argue even from the 65 to the mid-70s, whether that's due to welfare spending or to do the things like Civil Rights Act, which brought African Americans into the labor force, or the women's movement, which improved women's earnings and so on. So there's not a whole lot of evidence to suggest that additional welfare spending, at least today, is, is lowering poverty significantly. It, it, we have, of course, got, no longer have the Michael Harrington style uh, destitution that Phil was talking about, where a third of a American poor didn't have running water in, in their homes and so on. That sort of stuff is gone. But there is this question of whether we're actually lifting people out of poverty now with the, with the programs we have. Yeah, the gentleman in the blue right behind the previous speaker. Thank you. Um, what what? Sorry, consider, can you identify yourself just so we? Oh, Jim Lamberg, uh, a friend of the author, one of the authors. Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, what what uh, consideration have you? Did you give, or might you give, to things that would stimulate job creation, both by the private sector and, and you know the old New Dealer type uh, public. Uh, Works projects and that kind of thing. Have you, to me, the from what I am familiar with, it's really difficult to find employment under the circumstances of uh, the low income, you know, very low income uh, black areas and uh, people now being losing their jobs because of the outflow of jobs to other countries. Uh, so. Did you give consideration to that, that instead of trying to give people an incentive to find jobs, give incentives or 
put some kind of pressure on the private sector to create plenty of jobs for the people that we have and the federal government in a time of very low uh, interest rates. Uh, the short answer, Jim, is, is yes. Um, uh, we have a series of recommendations basically to uh, make it easier for business, particularly small business, to create jobs. We, there's an awful lot of policy now, government policy now, that inhibits a job creation. The regulations on small manufacturing businesses, for example, uh, are estimated to be something like fifteen or twenty thousand dollars per employee uh, of, of simple um, uh, regulatory uh, requirements. So we have a number of, of recommendations about that. We have almost absolute sweeping recommendations about idiotic licensing requirements. Uh, this is a lot of that is is uh, state uh, uh, originated, but it in, in, when you have to, to license things like flower arranging and hair braiding and taking care of horses' teeth and other things uh, that requires that you, you go to some college, uh, uh, some training course that costs $1,000, these are, are stopping people from getting new businesses started, and new businesses uh, are one of the lifebloods of, of our economy. So we have a num number of recommendations uh, about that. As to the availability of work, one of the positive things that Lisa mentioned just a minute ago is that people are finding work and, and not telling anybody about it. At least half the people she talked to, and we think this is, this is uh, in, indicative of the, of the total population, were working off the books. Uh, there's a big underground economy out there, and in a way, that's good news because it, people, it means that people want to work, and it means that they're finding ways of, uh, uh, of working uh, out and also bartering and exchanging, as, as, as Lisa said. Um, but, well, let me stop there. Those are some of the, the principal things that, uh, that we suggest to, to make more jobs. And the licensing is an area of broad bipartisan agreement. It's something that even the White House has spoken out on. In fact, about 30% of all occupations in America now require some sort of license permit or state approval in order to, to participate. And funeral attendants yeah. uh, require a, a state license. And, and so uh, just don't die unapproved or something yes. <laughs> on that. Uh, yeah, up here in, in front. And then we'll move to the back uh, next. Hi, Gary Merritt. Um, thank you, Phil and Lisa. Um, very provocative. I, I'm looking forward to getting further into the book and, and finding uh, the um, narrative having to do with how we got to here with respect to um, misbegotten political processes and concepts uh, that were <clears throat> embodied in law uh, that brought us to this place. Uh, I, I suppose there will be a, a narr narrative arc on that. Uh, so we would better understand. We've had presidents who are Republican with uh, different types of uh, Senate and House arrangements and 
and all mixtures of things since uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And yet this has happened, Republican, Democrat, non porto qua. So um, do you, if you can understand how we got to here, it might be those people could be rallied around the idea that it hasn't worked out the way they, they wanted and become part of a constituency to change things mm -hmm. yeah, so that we're not just blame. griping about it. Well, I mean, I think the way we, the way we got here is fairly straightforward. Uh, as, as society becomes wealthier, uh, uh, people are more and more, you can say, embarrassed that there are poor among us, or they are simply more concerned, or they simply realize that we can afford uh, programs uh, to assist the poor. So people need food, we get food stamps. People need medical care, we get Medicaid, and so on. I don't think there's anything terribly mysterious about that. It is odd when you ponder it a bit uh, that in all of the, the relatively prosperous Western democracies, including the famous Scandinavia, which is always used as an example of how government in this regard uh, uh, can work, um, as they became wealthier, instead of thinking, well, now the whole society is wealthier, so fewer people are going to need welfare, have decided instead that as society becomes wealthier, we will use more of our wealth to help the poor, even though they need it less than, than they did before. Um, but that's, that happened here, and, and it, has, it has happened in all the Western democracies. I don't think it's, it, it's terribly mysterious. Um, and um, uh, the differences, uh, there are differences right and left, that is, uh, between conservative and liberal uh, views of all this, but that, I don't think that's quite what you were asking. Well, I just observed that uh, even with Republicans in decision-making legislative uh, roles, what it is. Yeah. yeah um, got time for two or three more questions. We'll take two, and then uh, David Bowles, you'll finish it up. Uh, thank you, Gerald Chandler. Um, wouldn't you agree that using the word poverty is rather misleading because it's actually a government assistance level and that uh, we have decreased poverty? You used the word destitution before, and we've certainly decreased that. And that uh, what we actually do is keep raising the level to uh, that uh, government assistance is allowed. Well, it's, it's a fair point. Uh, a number of uh, scholars have... Uh, hypothetically asked, uh, will we continue providing welfare when beneficiaries can afford second homes and sailboats? Uh, and it, it's, an, it's an interesting question um, because the, the lifestyle of most poor Americans today exceed middle American standards of 50 or 60 or 70 years ago. 
I mean, having running water, uh, hot and cold running water, indoor plumbing, a television set, a telephone, a microwave, and uh, and a computer uh, would have looked uh, very, very good to my parents when they were young. That's quite a long time ago. Um, but um, relative poverty is a very deeply ingrained belief in American society, and I think in, in Western society generally, um, and as long as there are people who are conspicuously more poor than most people, uh, I, I think that the concern will continue to exist, even though in absolute terms you could argue that it doesn't. Yeah, the gentleman's had his hand up a little for a while there. I'm Stephen Schafferman with Basic Income Action, and I was pleased to hear you mention Charles Murray and the negative income uh, income maintenance experiments from the 60s. I just want to see if you're following the discourse about basic income in Europe and Canada and many other places where this idea of a guaranteed floor is gaining enormous support. There will be a referendum in Switzerland in a couple of weeks. Uh, there are programs, pilot programs getting launched in Holland, in England, in Canada. Uh, there have been pilot programs in India and even Namibia. So I'm just wondering if you could comment on the rest of the world and these ideas and how they might provide insight for what we're doing. Well, I think you're right. I mean, around the world, people are, it's a sign of, of the wealth in the world, right? That we are at a point where we are even considering a basic income for all citizens, for example. And um, that's wonderful news. Uh, we've looked at various, I mean, Phil's already talked about it some, but um, our concern is basically this, this it, it's sort of at war with our idea that people need to be working to be happy. So if you just give them money, and, and they can choose, as Phil said, you know, four guys get together and get a beach house. There's nothing wrong with that. But we have a sort of philosophical question about, well, what does that mean? Because we're not, you know, the minute you start putting rules on it and saying you have to work, well, then we're back to what we're doing right now, right? So it is, it's very interesting. And I think Phil and I would agree that um, we're excited to see these studies coming about. I think there needs to be a lot more research. Um, and it is fascinating that different countries and different places are all sort of reaching that point at the same time. And um, I'm just excited that we have that kind of ability. I mean, having grown up in the developing world and I see how different it is now, it's, I mean, we've made a lot of progress. I mean, there's a lot of problems all over the world, but wow, the fact that countries like as varied as you just mentioned are looking at it is, I think, awesome, so. Yeah, certainly we should give us some data to begin to look at uh, results as we see it come out. So we say Finland is another place uh, Switzerland is going to lose the referendum. I mean, it's just the nature of Swiss democracy. You lose anything that's the first time it's, it's proposed. Uh, the Utrecht experiment in the Netherlands, we should have data within a couple of years. And Canada is still trying to figure out how to, how to devise their, their proposed experiment. So we don't really have data yet, or these things aren't really in place yet in, in any of these places. We're still talking about it. But it will provide some interesting data about whether or not this is good. It also looks to whether these are sort of add-on, we're just tossing more benefits into the pile, or whether we're really talking about replacing the existing welfare system, which seems to be what the Finns seem to be moving towards in their approach. 
the Swiss, we have no idea actually what it's going to be because they left it all up to the, uh, to the federal council to actually develop. So that's one reason why it's going to, going to probably lose on now that. So let's finish it up, my colleague David Bowes, with the last uh, question of the, uh, of the afternoon. I actually have two questions, uh, which may or may not be related. Uh, number one, I was monitoring the uh, Twitter feed on the event, and somebody posted a question there asking, was there any rigor, any rigor or sampling to the interviews you did, and are you trying to present them as representative of something? Uh, my own question would be, if I'm a person who knows a fair amount about welfare, has, has read a book or two, a, uh, a study or two, what's the most original or valuable thing I would get out of this book? They may be related, so let's... You... Yeah, okay. So as far as rigor, no, there was not a scientific sampling done um, by state of who I talked to. This was what I would refer to as random sampling, because I randomly walked around and ran into people. So um, as far as that, that would be my answer. Um, I, I interviewed whoever would talk to me, wherever I went. Um, I walked into lots of different situations, from Indian reservations to tent cities in Seattle, where a lot of homeless live, to, you know, it was... I think it was representative of the country, which was really important to me. I mean, I argued pretty hard for going all over the different regions because I thought it was important. Um, but no, I didn't take, you know, five women and five men from each state and of different ages and, and you know, do anything like that. And then what, I don't remember the second question. Well, what's, the, what's the most different takeaway? Why is this book different than the 250 other books on welfare that have been written the last 10 years? Well, because we wrote it. No. <laughs> no, we'll start with that one. Um, I, the, the most surprising thing to me, and I think it comes through in the book pretty strongly, uh, is the importance, the central importance, of work to a decent life. Um, I, as a libertarian, abhor patronizing other people. And if it weren't for the fact that our welfare system is incredibly patronizing uh, uh, right now, I wouldn't be suggesting uh, things that uh, also seem uh, patronizing. But it does seem to me, and I think this emerges from the book, and it is very controversial, but it seems to me that human beings are happier when they work and even when they are forced to work, even if they don't feel like working. Um, there are those of us who make our own mountains. Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But a lot of the time, what people react to and deal with successfully are challenges put in front of them. And it was an eye-opener for me, and I think it comes through in the book, that a satisfying life requires work, even if it's unpleasant, even if you don't choose it, it still seems to be fundamental to a decent and, and happy life. 
Well, as a, as a reader of the book, and not, not one of the authors, and someone who's read a lot of those studies in those books, one of the interesting things that I find the big takeaway is those interviews in the voice of the poor in here. Because you read a lot of the books on the left, Nickel and Dine, or some of the other famous books, and they, talk, they deal with people. And you read a lot of books on our side of the debate, and they deal with numbers. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this does speak to the people and the people who are hurt by the welfare system, I do find unique and important uh, voice in this debate. And for those of you who want to read that, the book is The Human Cost of Welfare. Uh, the authors are Phil Harvey and Lisa Conyers, and they will be upstairs signing some books if you, we are selling them. Uh, so uh, please join us for lunch and, uh, and get your book signed. Thank you all very much for coming.